Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Helper. Are you in search for the perfect health insurance? Well, look no farther because they are the ultimate platform that revolutionizes the way that you find, enroll, and manage your health coverage. HealthBird offers an innovative solution that is tailored just for you. They have a lightning fast search engine that you can effortlessly compare health insurance quotes in milliseconds. There's no more tedious hours of browsing endless websites or spending hours on the phone with insurance agents. They offer a user-friendly app available on iOS and Android, which puts the power of managing your health insurance right at your fingertips. So again, you know, don't let the complexity of health insurance overwhelm you. Join Helper community and experience a seamless, intuitive platform that puts you in control. So get a quote today at healthbird.com forward slash dealmakers. This episode is brought to you by Bupos. Attention entrepreneurs, are you ready to take your business aspirations to new heights? Allow me to introduce you to Bupos, the ultimate solution for finding and funding your SaaS and subscription-based business acquisitions. With Bupos, you'll experience a seamless and worry-free process. They offer flexible funding and require absolutely no personal guarantee. I mean, again, you can go there, you can explore over a thousand opportunities pre-approved for financing, ensuring that you invest in a business with true profit potential. Bupos has got you covered. Their team actually provides one-on-one advisory support to help you making informed decisions. And on Bupos, you gotta remember, they've already approved over 700 million in funding and they've written over 3,000 businesses, finance hundreds of successful business acquisitions and have an impressive 4.7 out of five stars on Trustpilot. So you should go to bupos.com forward slash dealmakers, and that is bupos as B-O-O-P-O-S dot com forward slash dealmakers. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder. We're going to be talking about the good stuff that we like to hear, building, scaling, financing, and exiting. I mean, this is a founder that has an exit underneath his belt and He's doing something really remarkable in a very uh, exciting industry right now. You know, everyone is talking about what they're up to. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today. And let's see if I say it right. That is Vishal Hari Prasad and also known as V8. Welcome to the show. Alejandro, thank you so much. I think you just said my name perfectly. Uh, But the nickname does make it easier for others. I really do appreciate that, though. Thanks for having me. I love it. I love it. Well, V8. Let's say let's do a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up, being born and raised in New York City? Well, it was it was amazing. Um, you know, I was very very fortunate and lucky to have uh, be surrounded by a loving family, a great community. Uh, you know, I was born in the South Bronx, uh, very strong Caribbean um, Guyanese culture around me. A lot of great Trinidadian, Puerto Rican, and um, Jamaican culture as well. Um, but it, it was really just just wonderful to. Um, have that community atmosphere, the uh, understanding and reliance on each other um, to uh, survive, to make it, and to appreciate each other for what you can do. So, what what ended up getting you into um, into math and you know technology? I mean, what 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 developed the love for for all those things? 
Well, it's, it's a good question. So, you know, growing up um, as a young kid, we were right under the flight path for LaGuardia Airport, and I would all see the planes coming overhead from from my grandparents' um, uh, walk-up. And I knew from a young age I wanted to be a pilot, and I fell in love with aviation. Uh, less computers, because they weren't really a thing back then, or at least not, not in the personal sense. Um, but fast forward a couple of years, I was in high school when 9-11 happened, and I was actually, uh, I remember this very clearly, I was in, in uh, study hall. And uh, I remember watching the, uh, the the towers get hit, and I was also um, going through my selection list for for the schools I wanted to go to. Um, at the very top of it was the U.S. Air Force Academy, great spot to become a, a, a pilot. But I also realized at that point um, there was much more than just flying that really mattered to me. Um, and I think you know my my hometown, I had uh, uh, friends and, and relatives that were in uh, some of those towers. Um, Thankfully, they got out, but some of their coworkers didn't. Um, but it really, it really struck me the importance of um, service as well, and the opportunity to uh, do both of those things. And then, so I, I selected the U.S. Air Force Academy, um, which, as a natural aside, you have to get into technology, you have to get into computer science and other things if you want to be a great Air Force officer. And that's where I really um, developed my love and, and, and appreciation for it. And it's pretty amazing because you were there for, I mean, and you're still, you know, in reserve, but you've been there for many, many years. So I guess, like, how has it been the experience of being part of the Air Force and and obviously, you know, like, without talking about classified stuff, you know, what has been some of the things that you have been, you know, uh, doing there? Yeah, you know, I was, I was super, super fortunate. Um, I decided not to go down the flying path, uh, given the opportunities that cybersecurity actually presented at that time. And, and this was before cyber warfare was a really uh, top of mind or headline uh, topic. After graduation from the, from the U.S. Air Force Academy, I was a math major, but they, they assigned me to a communications officer role. And I got to really experience what it takes to do enterprise IT and communications and its importance to accomplishing complex technical missions, right? Um, that combined with my math background got me reassigned to the, the National Security Agency. And at that time, that was at the forefront of cybersecurity and cyber warfare, defense against nation-state attackers. And I was lucky enough to be able to take my leadership experience as a military leader and a technical leader and apply it to really amazing missions overseas, helping prevent uh, IED attacks on our troops in Iraq and, and, and other places. Um, yeah, I really got to appreciate the mindset of being innovative, lean, and focused on the mission, but also respect and understanding of your adversary um, and what it takes to get into their decision loop and drive your innovation faster than theirs so that you can accomplish the mission. I think a lot of those trends have um, really served me well, both as a leader, um, as an innovator, and as a technologist. In uniform and out. You know, it's it's amazing. Also, you know, like the the change of 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 how things have developed. You know, when it when it comes to to conflict, because before people, you know, like would think about war or 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 countries going at it against each other with just like you know moving tanks, you know, inside. Now it's it's incredible. Like cyber, um, the 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 how how important it has become and and how much you know uh 
countries are really investing, you know, in, in the cyber, you know, programs that they have going on. Is that right? Oh, 100%. I think you, you, you're spot on. The, the digital revolution that's occurred over the past two decades for businesses of all kind has been significant. And it's only been accelerated by the COVID pandemic, right? I mean, every business, whether you like it or not, directly or indirectly, is exposed to cyber risk of some kind. Everybody has a reliance on remote work technologies or supply chains that have dependencies on cyber technologies. And so whether you're a technology company or not, you have some level of cyber risk associated with you, right? And it's just whether you realize it and are accounting for it that really matters. What I think is very fascinating is that society has shifted from IT and cyber as a nice-to-have tool to an integrated part of our daily lives, whether it's with social media and communications or with business operations and supply chains, right? And, and I think that shift happened without people really realizing it. I think 150 years ago, it was the Industrial Revolution and the move from steam to factories, and we had the Industrial Revolution, which led to the Industrial Age. Nowadays, we have the, the cyber revolution that's led to this digital economy that we, we really operate on in today's, today's world. So entering the world of entrepreneurship, tell us about this. How did it happen? So, you know, I was finishing up my last tour of duty in Iraq. I came back to, to the NSA and, and I, was, um, I was finalizing my move to the reserves. I was going to go do my PhD in math. Um, I met my co-founder, Raj, who at that time um, said, look, there's a really interesting uh, opportunity in cybersecurity. This was over a decade ago. And a lot of companies were still trying to figure out how do they solve their cybersecurity concerns. Um, and the venture world was investing heavily uh, in, in, in security startups. I said, look, you're, you're a trained attacker. You know how attackers think. You know how nation states think. Um, let's figure out if we can come up with a solution that helps companies um, get ahead of the bad guys. Um, at that time, defense in depth was the big thing for most companies. It was, it was really, how can I keep my perimeter walls higher and higher and higher? Um, maybe a little bit of interior defense, but not much. It was more about the perimeter. Uh, cloud was still coming online. And so what we did was create a product that um, helped companies look inside their own networks for evidence or traces of bad guys or criminal activity moving on inside their networks. Uh, we got funded by uh, Andreessen Horowitz here in Silicon Valley, and that, that led me to move out here um, and build that company. And it was, it was really fun. We got to hire our first engineering team, our talent, um, respect and understand the importance of making sure our lunch orders were correct for our engineers, um, which was not something I ever thought. I thought it was all just going to be on solving cool problems. Well, the lunch order is very important as well. Um, but separately, getting in front of clients for the very first time and ensuring that we understand their problem and that our technology actually works. It was great. We got a couple of uh, Enterprise 500 sales, CISO sales, and that took a while. That was a huge learning experience for me. Um, and ultimately, it was a great result. We were the first acquisition by Palo Alto Networks a year and a half later. And that led to the rest of my journey, understanding what it takes to make a huge security platform uh, scale and go at a global level. But I'm sure that that also gave you... Um a great amount of uh, visibility into what the full cycle of a company looks like. Because, you know, the fact that you guys were able to have that first company, you know, be the also the first time that you guys were able to raise money from 
sophisticated investors, you know, tier one investors actually, but then also the fact that you're able to bring it to the finish line, you know, with high flying colors where you were able to achieve, even though it was not disclosed, you know, it was a three X, you know, the returns, um, you know, giving that back to the investors. I mean, that's quite an achievement. So what kind of visibility did that give you into the journey of, 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 of going through the full cycle as a, as a founder but then also kind of like make us insiders. How was that process of really going through an acquisition? Well, you know, and a lot of credit to my co-founder Raj here, but we, it's all about alignment of incentives across all of the key constituents, right? And, you know, at every level, it's slightly different, but, but ultimately CEOs have to manage expectations of their investors, expectations of their employees, and expectations of their clients or prospective clients and expectations of the market. Four key areas that you're always continuously uh, marketing or understanding or learning about and aligning. Um, ensuring that our investors understood where we were going to make our investments, um, what our expected returns are on the, that product development, that our employees understood what our um, targets were from a revenue perspective and a timeline to achieve those targets, and that our clients understood uh, our need, our requirements, and also the value to them, the problems that we were actually solving. And I think in all four of these, understanding the, aligning the expectations is what a really good founder and CEO should be doing at all times. And it's a careful balance. Um, I think for getting to a solid exit is a careful journey that has to thread the needle against all four of those. Because if any one of those goes off or over-invested, you're going to lose the scope on where your product development is or where your sales numbers are or what your investors are expecting. And so managing the expectations across those four constituencies is, is crucial. Hey, guys. So pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com, and we would love to take a look at helping you out.
So then talk to us about then once the transaction happens, then you ended up uh, going to Palo Alto so that you could help with the integration. I mean, you were there for about two years and a half. But as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So right after the two-year mark, where perhaps, you know, the vesting and resting was up, right? I'm sure there was not a lot of resting, but uh, definitely a lot of vesting. After that was up, you know, it was time to um, to take a look at what the next chapter looked like. And uh, obviously that led you to now launching your, your latest baby. So walk us through what were the sequence of events in order to bring resilience to life? Yeah, great, great question. You know, and a big part of this, a good entrepreneur is always learning, right? Always looking for opportunities, but also getting smarter in the process, right? The cybersecurity is, is a core passion of mine, um, whether it's from my, my military days or from my entrepreneurial days. And the Palo Alto acquisition, we were so fortunate from the time frame. Uh, the returns were great, but the lessons learned, the ability to have to be a, a cog in that machine as it scaled, as they went from a few thousand clients worldwide to 70,000 clients worldwide, seeing that march from a few two, three billion market cap to 20 billion in market cap. Um, looking at the strategy that they had, that executive team did was, was really eye-opening and what it takes to engage clients and scale a business. So that was just operationally and strategically very eye-opening for me. But it also afforded us an opportunity to look at the problems that the industry was facing, right? Um, people were spending more and more on cybersecurity year over year, yet cybercrime was far eclipsing that cost, right? Um, you know, by 2025, a lot of reports say that there'll be over 10.5 trillion in cybercrime losses, yet cybersecurity investment will only grow to 1.75 trillion, right? Just 10% of that amount. What I found fascinating and, and what uh, the CEO of Paul Alton, I work time, Mark McLaughlin, I think what he said that really struck a chord in me was, if we're going to do something big in the cybersecurity space, it has to be more than just a security feature. We have to, as he would say, shift the economics of cybersecurity. And that really was the genesis um, or, or the instigator behind resilience, right? Is economics, cybersecurity, and shifting. Really what we're thinking about is how do we make the world harder for the bad guys, making it more expensive for them to do the cyber attacks, and it was very simple. How can we translate cybersecurity economics to finance, right? Don't just spend more on every single device that's coming out in the cybersecurity world. Let's prioritize what your value at risk is. Let's prioritize what your security plan is. And then let's ensure that you're adequately spending uh, on the devices or um, approaches of security that will lower your risk. And wherever there's a gap, ensure it transfer it over to the cyber insurance arena. And that requires the translation layer. And that's that's really what resilience is about. So then for the people that are listening that, um, you know, for them to be able to get it, what ended up being the business model of resilience? How do you guys make money? So at the core of it, we uh, sell insurance, cyber insurance to corporate enterprises. And then we also sell cyber software, cyber resilient software as we define it, which is that translation layer between the technology security stack people and processes that they have, quantifying it to a cyber action plan and hygiene plan, and then pricing it 
with in the form of cyber insurance. And our business model is, is very simple. We sell insurance, and then we also sell uh, a resilience platform license that does that translation layer for them. And, and, and also for you guys, I mean, things have evolved quite a bit. Uh, obviously, you guys got started, you know, with a company, uh, you know, right in 2017, I believe it was, and they, sorry, 2016. And then in 2019, basically, there was a pivot that happened. So how... How did that pivot come about, and, and at what point did it become like so clear that that was the way to follow? Yeah, Alejandro, it's, it's a great, great question. So, um, our first, uh, the, the first iteration of Resilience was actually called Arceo uh, AI, and the thesis was very clear. It's it was the thesis and mission has always remained the same. How do we connect the technical uh, security stack, people, and processes to better cyber hygiene and incentivizing that hygiene? Um, the first thought was let's create the technology that connects to a company's security technologies and security stack. Uh, use that technology to help in the insurance industry underwrite policies profitably. And then eventually innovate and create new policies based on their connectivity. Our original business model was to sell insure tech software to the insurance industry so that they could innovate on insurance products. What we realized a year and a half in, and I think this is, this is very important when it comes back to aligning investor expectations, industry expectations, and customer expectations, is we have revenue targets we have to hit to validate our value, valuations, um, but we have timelines to do so. If our customer base does not share the same problem-solving and timeline um, views, if, there's, if those aren't aligned, um, we have to shift something. In this case, what we did is the technology, we realized the insurance industry is, uh, it's great. It's great at doing what it does, sell insurance policies. Um, not necessarily too great at creating or, or innovating on new risks inherently. We would have to do that ourselves. And so what we did is in 2019, instead of selling that technology to the great clients we had at that time, we pulled it back. We said, thanks, but no thanks. And then these were interesting. I had to tell the board we were doing this. I had to call those clients and say, guys, I appreciate the, the two, three-year contracts that you, you did with us, but I'm returning your money for the next two years. Uh, thanks for the first year, and we'll keep this going uh, for your business interests. But that's not the future of where we're headed now. We're taking this technology in-house, and we're starting our own insurance company, an MGA, on top of it. And that's what we did. In 2019, Resilience was the rebrand of our sale. Using that technology is the core of our business now to underwrite um, profitable uh, insurance policies and also power the SaaS uh, solution that we provide to do the risk translation for our clients. And how much capital have you guys raised to date? We've raised just over $225 million, um, across. Uh, we just finished our Series D round. Uh, we announced it two weeks ago. It was a $100 million raise. And, you know, I was really happy to show that it was an up-round uh, from our fleet as well. And that's quite an achievement in the market they, that we're in. So I guess, what have you guys learned, too, about the, perhaps raising rounds in economic downturns? I think it, it all starts coming back to that alignment of investor um, interests and expectation management. We, When we did our C round, and, and uh, we were very fortunate. Our A round was light speed. Um, our B round was Founders Fund and our C round was General Catalyst. All amazing tier one investors that set very high bars and do excruciating diligence 
looking into the internals, um, turning over every leaf and ensuring that there really is quality, um, logic, coherence, and integrity behind the numbers. And then most importantly, that there's sanity to the projections, both in terms of what we think we can do uh, in sales and the valuations that we should receive for them. We raised our C round in, in 2021 at the height of a very uh, frothy valuation market. And I can tell you, we, we had investors that were uh, maybe not tier ones, but were very much interested in doing whatever it takes to get, uh, get in on the round and offering valuations that uh, were probably a little less realistic than what we would say uh, we could grow into. And, and I think the beautiful part here was General Catalyst, um, Lightspeed, Founders Fund, all of them have been the same. They've said, look, let's keep it sane. Here's what we really think you can do, but we'll add our brand, our reputation, and we'll keep that diligence going throughout the process. So raising a round that you know you can grow into, uh, I think that's been, with realistic valuations, is, is crucial. No kidding. I mean, there's going to be a big reset because people went with valuations that were not realistic. And uh, now we're seeing the bloodbath. So really remarkable what you guys have done in that department. I guess, you know, for the for the folks that are listening to get an idea on the scope and size of resilience to, you know, anything that you can share, maybe like even number of employees, whatever you feel comfortable sharing, how big is resilience today? Yeah, we're 170, 170 employees across 14 different time zones. And we're and all the major time zones here in the U.S., but we also have operations in Canada, London, um, and now moving across Europe as well. Well, hey, that sounds like a lot of operations and a lot of different uh, places where there's like mini cultures that they are getting influenced by the actual culture that you guys have. But obviously, every office, every every spot is going to have their own way of being, you no, know, as a as a culture. But I guess what what has been to the experience of leading in a hybrid and remote environment like the one that we have right now? I think that is honestly one of the key challenges for, for leaders of, of all sizes. And working across time zones with experts in various industries, you lose out on the opportunity to just drop by an office and or a water cooler and have a conversation or a, hey, what if, or let's just get on a whiteboard and chat about it. So you have to be very intentional to make those connections, right? And that's just on the ideas and business front. Separately, you have to be very intentional about making the human connection, um, the having that empathy, because we're on Slack all the time. And, and I can very quickly just type up a quick request to one of, one of our, our team members, and they could take it the wrong way. They, they don't have the tone of me saying uh, and, and not sounding too serious when I'm asking this question. And you can take that tone the wrong way, which could lead to a lot of strife, a lot of frustration. So having empathy and understanding of the human behind that remote message is also key. One of the things that we do here is ensuring that we have quarterly or, or semi-annual get-togethers of key business units and functions, across functions, across geographies, so that we can reaffirm our commitment to each other and to the mission and cultural values of the business. Um, I think that's absolutely essential. In for all leaders in this complex and hybrid environment. So I like to uh, double click on that, you know, especially as we're thinking about people, as we're thinking about vision. Imagine you were to go to sleep tonight, V8, and you wake up in a world where the vision of resilience is fully realized. 
What does that world look like? That is, that's a good one. Um, so a world fully realized, I think we don't worry about cybercrime anymore. It's not sensationalized. Uh, you know, bank robberies were headline used 100 years ago in the Wild West. I think that's the same thing for ransomware attacks today. Uh, in the future, ransomware attacks, one, don't happen as often. And even when they happen, they're not profitable or worth anybody's time. Um, I think the same thing could be said for business fraud or spam, uh, business email compromise. All these items that we worry about and end up becoming the headline of and the cause of a lot of fear for cyber is gone. It's uh, handled. It's incorporated into our daily lives, into our business lives, into our personal lives. We don't think about it much like we don't think about crime or fire or other type of property risks. Um, and the reason for that is because we have clarity and certainty around the right steps to protect ourselves, to get better on our hygiene from cyber, our exposures to cyber, and um, our recovery from cyber incidents. So we're talking about the future here. So I want to talk about the past, but being able to do it with a lens of reflection. So imagine I'm able to bring you back in time. And I bring you back in time to the moment where you, know, you met Raj or, you know, you were thinking about like doing something, you know, of your own more on the entrepreneurial side of things. And you had the opportunity of whispering to your younger self, one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Be crystal clear on the problem that you're trying to solve and who you're trying to solve at every step of the journey. And it's okay that that shifts over time. It's not one problem, one client, one market segment. Um, if you want to build a long-lasting enterprise, you need to continuously innovate on that problem with those clients and with that industry. And, and I guess the real takeaway from that is that there's no, don't have that, um, don't have any guilt or fear of making those changes. Or those pivots. It's not, you didn't get it wrong. You're learning. And that learning and that iteration is essential for hitting the next higher steps of growth. I love that. Nothing like listening. Everything happens in the listening. Thank you so much for that, VH. So for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, easy. VA at cyberresilience.com. That's my email. And cyberresilience.com has our information. Amazing. Well, VA, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an absolute honor to have you with us today. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts, or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.